The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Michael Horton. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lamb of God who takes away our sins and even this morning welcomes, uh, through his intercession, you welcome us into your presence by your spirit. We pray that the words of my heart and uh, of our hearts and the meditations of my lips will be acceptable in your sight, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. And uh, for those who are visiting with us, the faculty is going through 2 Corinthians this semester. And... Uh, My text is 2 Corinthians 3, beginning at verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit makes alive." Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Testament, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is one more time. Paul says that he has to defend his apostleship against the so-called super apostles. And this time they're coming with the objection, where are your letters of recommendation? Uh, I don't see your jacket blurbs, Paul. Who's endorsed you? Now, Paul could have come back as he did in 1 Corinthians 3 and said, well, I'm kind of the foundation layer. I belong to the apostles And we're laying the foundation that people like you, if you're faithful, of course, super apostles weren't, are building on. I don't have to have letters of recommendation. I'm an apostle. But here he doesn't turn to arguments like these. Here he turns 
to the substance of what he's preaching, to the new covenant itself, a covenant greater than the old covenant and therefore a ministry greater than all ministries. And so it's from a little bit of a different angle that Paul makes his argument for his apostleship, turning from himself to the content of what he's preaching. And he tells them, I don't need a letter of recommendation. You are my letter of recommendation. And what's interesting is Paul says that the sufficiency isn't for me. The sufficiency is from the Lord. But he has made me sufficient as a minister of the new covenant. And that's what makes you a letter, a living letter from Christ, he says, not from me, but from Christ delivered by us. That's his view of his ministry. He's a, he's a, a, uh, he works for the post office. He's a deliverer. He's not making this up. He's simply delivering what he's received. And that's why they are his letter of commendation, because the Spirit has written his word on their hearts. They have been regenerated. This is the fulfillment of everything that Ezekiel 37 and Jeremiah 31 spoke of when they anticipated the day when the law would be written on the hearts. The hearts of stone would be replaced with hearts of flesh, and everyone would receive forgiveness from a covenant that is everlasting and whose mediator is no less than God himself, our Savior Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of the uh, journalist who came to Billy Graham one day and uh, pointed out that, that uh, one of uh, the people who came forward at one of his crusades was now a very outstanding atheist and was a critic of everything Christian. And the, the reporter said, but he is one of your converts, to which Billy Graham had the wisdom to reply, well, yes, he must be. You see, we can have our converts on whom the Holy Spirit hasn't written his word, whose heart he hasn't regenerated, but all of those whom the Spirit calls through his word are a letter of recommendation for the ministry of the new covenant. Written with the spirit of the living God, not with ink, Paul says, written on human hearts and not on tablets of stone. In 1 Corinthians 9.2, he says, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So there's a dear relationship between the apostle Paul and the Corinthian church, even when he scolds them, even when he takes them in hand. He treats them as his sheep, who are the seal of his apostleship in the Lord. So it's not about Paul's abilities. It's about the new covenant. The new covenant is the basis for a courageous, even bold ministry, even if you're not a super apostle. Even if you don't uh, uh, have the, the right hair. Even if you don't have the right charisma. Even if you don't have the right leadership skills. It's the ministry of the new covenant that gives you boldness and courage. That's the occasion for the argument. What's the argument itself? The thesis statement here I take to be, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And to understand everything that he's about to say, we have to summarize a little bit of, uh, of Exodus 34. This is a midrash on Exodus 34. First of all, it's the second giving of the law, second writing of the law on the new tablets. 
the law which you broke, he reminds them, so it's not off to a good start. Uh, Then the Lord came down in the cloud to meet with Moses. No one else is supposed to be there, just the mediator of the covenant. And the Lord stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And so even though I believe the Holy Spirit is the preacher here, uh, the content is very definitely the law. The law that was given at Sinai a mountain in flame, a, a, a mountain with a sight so terrifying that, that Moses was afraid. And so Moses intercedes in this passage, although this is a stiff-necked people, please go with us and forgive us if I have found favor in your eyes. The Lord says, I'm making a covenant with you. Don't make any treaties with the inhabitants of the land, break down their altars, uh, cut down their Asherah poles, for the Lord is a jealous God. And then he repeats the command to celebrate the Passover, redeem the firstborn from your flock, redeem all of your firstborn sons. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Moses writes the commands just as God dictates and then returns below with the tablets of the law and we read, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face, but whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went out to speak with the Lord again. This is the background of what Paul is discussing here in his contrast between the law and the gospel. It's it's really parallel to Hebrews 12, isn't it? The contrast between Sinai and Zion. And in Paul, there is, when he speaks of the law and the gospel, typically he has these two different ways of talking about it. The law and the gospel in redemptive historical terms, Old Testament New Testament, or promise and fulfillment, which is an argument from lesser to greater. Not an antithesis, but an argument from lesser to greater. But then there is a theological use of this distinction between law and gospel, which is more of a contrast, where he contrasts the ministry of Moses at Mount Sinai, calling that the law, And the promise made to Abraham fulfilled in the new covenant. One way, a place where you can see this very clearly is in Romans 3, 20 and 21. No one will be justified by the law. But now a righteousness is revealed apart from the law, Sinai, to which the law and the prophets as part of the Old Testament prophesied. So the gospel is in the Old Testament in that redemptive historical sense. But the law, when Paul speaks of it in a theological sense, the law that he has in mind here particularly is the ministry of Moses, as 
we see clearly in this text. Not everything in the Old Testament is fading and a temporary glory, but Sinai is. That part of the Old Testament that belongs to the Sinai covenant is fading. It's not permanent. But whatever is enduring, permanent, and unconditional in its basis derives those qualities from the new covenant in Jesus Christ. It borrows from the future. Looking back to the Abrahamic promise. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews can say that Sinai is obsolete. Hebrews 8.13. The training wheels are off. Go ride the bike. Now, I, I, I struggled over whether I had enough time to do this, and I'm, I'm going to do this even now to cut out the rest of what I had to say because it's, Calvin's better. Uh, I, I love the way Calvin treats this. Uh, it's very much like Paul. Uh, first of all, the letter equals the Old Testament, he says. There is no doubt that by the term letter, he means the Old Testament, as by the term spirit, he means the gospel. The exposition contrived by Origen has got into general circulation that by letter we ought to understand the grammatical and genuine meaning of Scripture, or the literal sense as they call it, and that by the Spirit is meant the allegorical meaning, which is commonly reckoned to be the spiritual meaning. That's not what it means. No enthusiasm here. Letter means Old Testament. But letter also, Calvin says, means external preaching apart from its spiritual effect. For by the term letter, he means outward preaching of such a kind as does not reach the heart. And on the other hand, by spirit, he means living doctrine of such a nature as worketh effectually on the minds of men through the grace of the Spirit. But specifically, he says, this external preaching without the Spirit and without spiritual effect, is the law. Quote, It is asked whether God under the Old Testament merely sounded forth in the way of an external voice and did not also speak inwardly to the hearts of the pious by his spirit. I answer in the first place that Paul here takes into view what belongs peculiarly to the law. What is specific to the Sinai covenant as opposed to the rest of the Old Testament. For although God then wrought by his spirit, yet that did not take its rise from the ministry of Moses, but from the grace of Christ. Whatever grace there was under the, the times of Moses was by virtue of the covenant of grace, not by virtue of the Sinai covenant itself. True indeed, the grace of God did not during that time lie dormant, but it is enough that it was not a benefit that belonged to the law. For Moses had discharged his office when he had delivered to the people the doctrine of life, adding threatenings and promises. For this reason, he gives to the law the name of the letter because it is in itself a dead preaching, but the gospel he calls spirit because the ministry of the gospel is life-giving. Let us now briefly examine those attributes of the law and the gospel. Let us bear in mind that he is not speaking of the whole of the doctrine contained in the law and the prophets, and farther, that he's not treating of what happened to the fathers under the Old Testament, but merely notices what belongs peculiarly to the ministry of Moses. From this too it follows that the law was the ministry of condemnation and death, for when men are instructed as to their duty, and here it declared that all who do not render satisfaction to the justice of God are cursed, they are convicted 
as under sentence of sin and death. From the law, therefore, they derive nothing but condemnation, because God demands what is due to him, and at the same time confers no power to perform it. The gospel, on the other hand, by which men are regenerated and are reconciled to God through the free, free remission of their sins, is the ministry of righteousness and consequently of life also. One uh, Reformed theologian, uh, I won't mention his name, but uh, in his book, Escondido Theology, says that, that one text here for not being able to say that there's a clear distinction between law and gospel is 2 Corinthians 2.16. The gospel is the odor of death to some. So doesn't this call into question the idea that the law kills and the gospel makes alive? Calvin says, well, my answer to this is as follows. To that verse, that objection. There is, notwithstanding of this, a great difference between them. For although the gospel is an occasion of condemnation to many, it nevertheless reckoned the, is reckoned the doctrine of life because it is the instrument of regeneration and offers to us free reconciliation with God. But the law, as it simply prescribes the rule of a good life, does not renew men's hearts to the obedience of righteousness and denounces everlasting death upon transgressors, so it can do nothing but condemn. Or if you prefer, in another way, the office of the law is to show us the disease, the office of the gospel is to bring a remedy. Thus, in one word, we find that it is an accidental property of the law that is perpetual and inseparable that it killeth. So, in other words, it's a question of office. It's not a question of whether people stumble over the gospel. It's a question of whether what they're stumbling over is condemnation, or life. Calvin goes on to say, the apostle says the law was but for a time and required to be abolished, but the gospel remains forever. There are various reasons why the ministry of Moses is pronounced transient, for it was necessary that the shadow should vanish at the coming of Christ. Yet it applies to more than the shadows, Calvin says, for it intimates that Christ has put an end to the whole ministry of Moses which was peculiar to him and is distinguished from the gospel. For my part, I understand that abolition of the law mentioned here as referring to the whole of the Old Testament insofar as it is opposed to the gospel so that it corresponds with the statement, the law and the prophets were until John. For the context requires this. For Paul is not reasoning here as to mere ceremonies, but shows how much more powerfully the Spirit of God exercises his power in the gospel than of old under the law. Now, from the sublime to my own concluding remarks on the rest of the passage where he turns now to the role of the Spirit because in the New Covenant now, we not only have forgiveness as Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied, we have the Holy Spirit as a permanent possession. And Paul draws this out in saying that the Spirit is the Lord's. The Spirit is the one who brings liberty. And he is the Lord. And I think here Paul means the Holy Spirit is God. Just as the mediator of the new covenant is God, and therefore greater than the mediator of the old covenant, Moses. The medium of the new covenant is greater, the Holy Spirit, rather than tablets of stone. 
Typically in Paul, of course, the Spirit is distinguished from the Son and yet so inseparable in the economy of grace that the former is called the Spirit of Christ. To be indwelled by the Spirit is to be indwelled by Christ even though they're two distinct persons. Here I think that he's going back and forth in verses 15 to 18 between Christ and the Holy Spirit when he says, but when one turns to the Lord, there he's clearly, I think, referring to Jesus. When one turns to the Lord in faith, which is a really remarkable thing, what that means is the Yahweh he spoke to directly in Exodus 34 is Jesus of Nazareth. But then he says, now the Lord is the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord. And here, typically in Paul, that means the third person of the Holy Trinity, a distinct person of God who is God. And then he turns back to Jesus when he says, we behold by this Spirit the glory of the Lord. It's by the Holy Spirit that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For he says, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So he moves back and forth between Jesus as the Lord and the Holy Spirit who is Lord. It's a great passage for Trinitarian reflection. But his point is that from the Holy Spirit we have liberty. Liberty from what? From the condemnation of the law. From the weakness of the law. What the law could not do. Because of our weakness of the flesh. Not because of its imperfection. Liberty from unbelief. The veil versus faith. An unveiled beholding of Jesus Christ without Moses' mediation. Instead of beholding the fading glory of the old covenant through the veil, we're going into the Holy of Holies and beholding God unveiled in the face of Jesus Christ. And in that process, Paul says, something happens to us. The increasing glory of God in the face of Christ is changing us. We're being transformed by what we behold. As, we, as we're there, just as Moses' face was transformed and he became radiant, but then it faded away. We're being transformed from glory to glory. It just keeps getting better and better and never fades away. Faith is beholding. And preaching is the means of faith. Paul says that to the Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed or placarded as crucified. And then he goes on to say, by our preaching of the gospel when we were with you. It is by the preaching of the gospel that we placard Christ before people. That's how they behold him. And that's how they are transformed from glory to glory. His ministry is a beholding Christ ministry. It leads to justification, sanctification, and finally glorification where we are transfigured. We are being transfigured week after week, conformed to the image of Christ's glorified humanity. So to conclude, you are the letter of recommendation from Jesus to whatever church you will serve and whatever church you serve now. You are. You're ministers of the new covenant or exhorters of the New Covenant, about to become ministers of the New Covenant. You are those on whose hearts 
the third person of the Holy Trinity, has inscribed his word, both his law and his gospel, but through the gospel, not the law. Christ's mediatorial ministry, not Moses, is the basis of your ministry. You are those who may speak boldly and courageously and confidently because you're not coming out of the presence of God with a fading glory, but being transformed from glory to glory by the proclamation of Christ. And as you hear and you preach that gospel, you are transformed along with your hearers. More radiant than Moses' visage after speaking directly with the Lord at Mount Sinai. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the new covenant. We thank you for the blessings of the old covenant. We thank you for leading your people by types and shadows. It is not because of your failure to communicate, but because of the hardness of our hearts apart from the Spirit, that they did not look through the veil, through the types and shadows of the law to behold Christ. And now, Father, that we have the new covenant and are ministers of the new covenant, help us, Father, not to look at Moses, but to look through Moses to see Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Copyright 2016, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.